Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, thrill-seeking funsters. It's time to take off those rocket-powered roller skates that keep you constantly on the go. It's time to flop into your favourite comfy recliner, the one with the refrigerated cup holder and the USB charger port, and set the sound level to soothing, because it's time for Matthew Dickerson to whisper sweet nothings into your ear. Except it won't be just sweet nothings, folks, because this week, Matt has a bunch of solutions to future problems that you didn't even know about. Isn't that right, Matt? I love when technology solves a problem that you didn't know you had. Yes, that's right. And I think about that sometimes with our smartphones, Mm -hmm. that we have apps now that do things that we didn't know we needed to do. It doesn't matter what it is. It might be you're sitting around a dinner party at night time and looking up and someone says, oh, I wonder what that star is up there, which some people do sometimes. And then there'd be all the experts around the table who'd be guessing, knowing, whatever. I just but pull now, out my sky map. That's right. You pull it out and go, you put, oh, well, that's there. And actually there goes a satellite across the sky. And there's, well, if we look in there, we probably can't see it, but there's a planet over there. And you can see Mars through the middle of the Earth. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we didn't know we needed to do all that until we had a smartphone that could do all that for exactly. us. But I want to talk a little bit about theft this week. Now, mm-hmm. we do talk sometimes about scams. I try and avoid them, but mm. I do like to do some public service announcements sometimes. But... One of the things that's better now is that we don't see a lot of mobile phones, smartphones, stolen because they're typically tracked. They're locked to an account. So if I'm a thief and I steal your smartphone, it's probably useless to me because I've got to get past the pin. Well, I can probably manage to do that. But then I've got to get past the account that it's locked to, whether it be an Android account or an iPhone account. That's a bit harder to work out how to get past that, to make the phone of any use to me whatsoever. It might be useful for some parts, but it's not really useful as a phone. So consequently, we've seen the number of mobile phones, smartphones that have been stolen, drop down fairly significantly. Mm. They haven't really worked out a way to get around that. Now, cars are still being stolen, and unfortunately, I think social media's got a little bit to do with it. I don't have a lot of data to back me up on this one, but you do see some people who like to post some things they do on TikTok and Mm. on social media, different sites, where they've stolen a car and they go and do silly things, drive too fast, or go and do burnouts, or whatever they might do with it. Exactly, yeah. But now, the good part is that I think it's going to get harder and harder to steal a car because you've got a phone that first of all gives you entry into the car, but secondly, allows you to track that. And there's been two incidents that I've seen lately. One was from a famous tennis player in Australia. His mother was driving his Tesla and someone held up his mother. This is in a major capital city, unfortunately, and said, give me the car and by the way, give me your phone because I know enough about these cars that you need a phone to make it work. Ah. So he stole the car and the phone, but of course... The lady just got in touch with her son, and his, her son on his phone could track just the track car. Just track the car, yep. That's right. And I heard about a friend. Can, have you got the capacity to speed limit them as well? Can you turn the speed down to like five k's an hour? I think I don't know how low you can turn it down, but you can certainly speed limit them. But I'm not sure if you can do that while it's going. Right. I know you can because I know when I've given it to my children, I can speed limit it and I can actually get a warning when they go over a certain speed. Yeah, okay. So you could do that, but while they're driving it, okay. maybe not so much. But I had one the other day where a friend of mine had two Teslas stolen. They had two Teslas in the household. Both got stolen. I won't go into the detail about how they were stolen. Yeah, you can't hotwire a a Tesla. It's like you're having a computer on wheels rather than having a car that's driven by a computer. Correct. There's no ignition that you stick a screwdriver in and turn it. Or as you see in the movies, you just put your hand under the dash and rip out a few wires and patch them together and a spark goes and off they go. It's a bit more complicated than that. But 
these two that were stolen, this particular friend of mine basically on his phone was tracking exactly where they both were on the phone to the police saying, yep, they've just gone up this street, yep, they've just turned left on this street, they're doing 80 k's an hour now, so the police could follow them. Unfortunately, they were a bit trapped and they ended up ramming the police car, which yeah. wasn't good for the police car, wasn't good for their car, but the joyride lasted all of about 10 minutes because the police could get onto it very quickly so as to where we. they were. <laughs> so that's a good warning. We don't have many thieves that listen to our podcast because obviously everyone that listens to our podcast is a nice, honest, genuine person. Exactly. But if anyone happens to filter it down to the thieves out there, then don't waste your time stealing a modern car because you've got the ability to track where it is all the time. Bingo. And it seems a bit pointless, doesn't it? You get a 10-minute joyride, you ram into a cop car, and then you spend some time with free accommodation. Yeah. (laughs) All right, better move on. Uh, Flicking through the table of contents today, I can see that we've got some goodies for people who, like me, love their nostalgia. I don't want to give away too much here, but if you ever owned an Atari, then get ready to squeal like a toddler on Christmas morning. Now, more stuff under the heading of Toys for Grown-Ups. There is a new Model 3 Tesla with some extra features that'll make you squeal like a toddler on Christmas morning. And if you like to squeal like a toddler on Christmas morning and robotics is your thing, then we've got two or three stories coming out of this clever little industry as well. Like our first story for today. Now, picture a messy bedroom in your home. What are your first thoughts there, folks? Are you just one to shrug your shoulders and give it a solid meh? Or does the mere thought of one of your bedrooms being unkept get you all jittery like you want to go and yell at a teenager or something? Personally, I'm not folding up or putting away any pair of shorts that I thought I just, well, that I've just taken off because I might want to use them tomorrow. They belong on the floor because they're not dirty or smelly yet, but then neither are they pristine clean laundry. They've got to do some time in purgatory yet. Now, Matt, tell me, there's a robot that's going to mess up my system. A bedroom cleaning robot, no less. Well, this is what every teenager wants. I'm sure there have been some teenagers working on this. this but is the you universe. see, the floor is as, as a filing system. <laughs> it is, it is. And this is the thing. <laughs> I don't know, when we built a house, why we bothered with built-in wardrobe. We mm-hmm. thought it was a good idea. And then we discovered that our teenagers like the floor drobe. It seemed much more efficient mm-hmm. than the wardrobe. That's right. Because... It's easy to see what you've got. Look at it all there. It's spread out for me ready. That's right. And I can pick it up easily without wasting time opening a cupboard door. (laughs) My wife did get a bit stressed for a number of years with our teenagers. In the end, I actually suggested she just put a photo on the door of the kids' bedrooms that looked like a perfectly pristine bedroom. (laughs) Take a photo. Like a full-size door photo. Correct. Exactly right. So take a photo of their bedroom when it's clean. So that's the first problem in this area, but yep. pretend you've got that photo and then blow it up to a full door size, stick it on the door, leave the door closed, you walk past, you go, huh, gee, that looks pretty good in there. And hopefully <laughs> that just tricks your brain, but I could never convince her not to open the door. She's one to get jittery. <laughs> right. right. So it is interesting, but there are some robots now that are at the point where they can go through and not just pick up the clothes from the floor, but sort them. Now, sorting is a bit of an issue. Mm. Again, we talk about it a lot. Humans... It's a personal sort of choice there. This well, morning. do you sort them by colours? Do you sort them by shorts and tops? Do you sort them by underwear and socks? Yeah. All these different things. At this stage, they're really focused on colours, which kind of is pretty easy, you'd think, for a, yeah, a right. robot to do. But at least you've got some way. Because when you wash them, you're probably going to wash the whites together. You're probably going to wash the darks together. Exactly. So that makes sense to go through and sort them by colours. But again, 
I'm not sure if teenagers would like this idea. I think the parents would love it. But the teenagers would go, where are those shorts that I had on for the last week that I've been going out and playing sport with? Where are they in the washing machine? Yeah. Who thought of that as an idea? It is progressing, though, robots around the home. Now, we have this image of a robot from the Jetsons where you're sitting there and the drinks are served to <laughs> you. I knew that reference was going to come up. In fact, <laughs> right. if you didn't, I was going to do it. But good, anyway, good. yeah. You get drinks served to you, you get the laundry done, you get the house cleaned up. We're not there yet, but we're getting to different parts of it. And this part here is focused really on cleaning up the bedroom. We've done another one, if you remember, that talked about how you can iron some of those clothes. Yeah, yeah. So getting to the point where you can pick them up from the room, then getting to the point where you can get them in a washing machine, then you get to the point where they're ironed again, getting them back in. So they're kind of focusing on little different areas. We've got Roomba-type robotics, if you like, that are around the house cleaning up things. We just need to get to the stage where it's all combined into one. But <laughs> but these researchers at the University of California in Berkeley are really focusing on just the floor drobe problem at this stage. Mm. And they're going pretty well with it, fairly and, fast. And did you say it's filing things by colour? At this stage. See, I've got an issue on. with that because the T-shirts have got to go together. Well, this is only separately for, to say uh, the shirts or the shorts. Well, this yeah. is only for for washing, I imagine. Yeah, this is okay. really focused on you've got a mess on the floor. Oh. pick them up and get them to the washing machine. That's okay. So it's not putting stuff back away yet. Right. No, yeah, so yeah, it, yeah. we're only approaching or addressing one problem at a time at this stage, and they're not actually particularly fast, which is interesting. They're just not human. So in other words, <laughs> it's not you and I having to do it. You let someone else go and do it. And as long as it's not me, then that's okay. So it's growing, it's happening. I think we're still 10 years away from someone from the Jetson, someone that yeah. we can sit back and say, get me a beer and do the washing and cook me dinner. I think that we're, we're still 10 years away. We need away. to do a shout out to the people at uh, MIT or Boston Robotics or whatever. And yeah, can you just get busy on that? Hurry up, hurry up. <laughs> Now, if you've read a bit of Sherlock Holmes, you'd know that a good sleuth loves to size up a decent footprint or two. Well, in 140 years, forensic science may have come a long way, but investigating footprints is still a big thing. And some new tech is now being employed by the West Yorkshire Police, and they're breaking new ground in matching shoe prints to suspects. Hello, hello, hello. What's all this then, Matthew? Well, I actually think it's Cinderella. It's the Cinderella story, uh, okay. and I'm sure they're going to call the technology Cinderella somewhere because it's just the first <laughs> thing I thought of when I was researching this one was Cinderella. One of the things that crooks have worked out is that a lot of places have CCTV. So if they walk in, smiling away as they go to break into a place, yep. they're probably going to be able to look at that face, and they're going to say, we know that person. Therefore, when you see robbers now come in and steal things, they've got a hoodie on, maybe a mask on, yeah. and maybe you've got dark clothing on that they don't really see as recognisable. Not as if, oh, I saw him with a Boston Red Sox shirt on, let's go and find a Boston Red Sox fan. Mm. It's really something where you cover up as much as you can. But what the thieves haven't gotten onto, and again, we know thieves don't listen to our podcast, so it's okay to talk about it here, is they don't bother covering up their footwear. So mm. what the clever people at the UK police are doing is they're saying, let's create some 3D shoe models from what we're seeing on the CCTV. Yeah, right. So they're covering up everything else. They worked out that even their hands need to be covered up because they might have some distinguishing feature on their hand. They might be able to tattoo on their knuckles, whatever. So cover all that up, but they don't worry about covering up their shoes. So what they're uh, then doing is they're creating 3D shoe models. They know the size. They know the brand. So from all of that, wow. they then go out, and I can imagine the police walking around with a shoe model. 
Now, James, just trying this shoe. Oh, that fits. Okay, <laughs> where were you on the night of the 27th? <laughs> so it is a bit like Cinderella. Yeah, and, okay. and so they're taking this information. Now, again, the critical thing in this is not to use this as the final part of the solution. And the police keep talking about that. These tools they're creating, whether it be facial recognition or shoe recognition, is a great way to help narrow down the list of suspects and then do some good old-fashioned police work. Okay, where were you? Can you tell me about this? Let's have a look in your home. Oh, you seem to have a nice new TV. Where did that come from? That type of good old-fashioned detective work. But this is a great way to narrow down the list. The equipment for this is pretty cost-effective. They're talking about £500 to add this equipment onto some CCTV footage that you've already got. Now, again, assuming you've got the CCTV footage, you feed it through this system, and then it'll say, okay, this brand shoe, this size, go out and look for someone wearing those. And you can imagine the police now just walking around, looking down at everyone's shoes, trying ah. to forget the face, forget anything about the, the breast of the person. Yeah, looking just at shoes. your shoes. Hold on, how long have you been wearing those shoes for? So <laughs> I, I think it's quite clever. That is and really clever. Unfortunately, the thieves will probably get to the stage where they start putting booties on or something else on there. And again, I've seen police do it where they look at someone's gait and they say, oh, I know someone that walks a bit like that. There's a funny little step they've got there. I reckon we might be able to identify that person, but you really have to know your crooks to know that. In this case, you don't have to know them that well. You just have to look for someone that wears those same types of shoes. Pretty good chance they're probably going to be wearing the same shoes the next day, the next week. They were on the night of the robbery. They're not wearing the same dark hoodie and yeah. mask, but they're probably wearing the same shoes. Yeah, so it's a pretty clever way of going about it. Very clever indeed. AI has invaded the modern construction industry with a robot that can knock up a stone wall before you can say, right said Fred. That's a bit of an exaggeration, Matt, I know. Uh, but laying stone is a bit trickier than bricks. It's somewhat more nuanced form of construction, so I'm told. But it's not beyond this robot in Switzerland, Matt. Tell us about this. It's quite fascinating, actually. Dry stone walling. I actually had a chat with someone just recently that is applying to be a, a master now, apparently, and I haven't been able to verify this, but apparently, according to this person, there are only 22 masters oh, in wow. the world. And to be a master of dry stone walling is a big thing. You've got to show a whole range of different things, structures you've created, and a whole range of different skills you've got. But this technology goes back. They've been able to carbon so date. We're, we're talking about just stacking stones that fit their... Without using mortar and things. Is that right? Exactly right. As I learned from this person, they said, it's just gravity and friction. That's all we're yeah, relying right. on to keep this wall up. It goes back, I did a quick bit of research, and the history goes back to about 3,500 BCE. So we're talking about maybe 5,500 year old technology. And you can imagine you didn't have any sort of mortar, any sort mm. of mud, any sort of binding agent back at 3,500 BCE. And some of those stone walls that were built then are still standing now yeah. because they really rely on gravity and friction and they can withstand a fair bit. So it's not like the mortar might break down. When you get down to, say, 2,500 BCE, the Great Pyramid of Giza used a type of mortar. I'm not sure exactly what it was made of, but I think kind of like a, a gypsum and lime it might have been used. But as people are familiar with the pyramids, they've got that sort of even look over some part of it and then it breaks away to just the stones underneath. And yeah. supposedly when they were built, they were all covered in a nice smooth mortar. But that yeah. breaks down, that mortar breaks down. Whereas dry stone wall, it doesn't break down. Yeah. It's just relying on those those stones, which 
don't change much in shape, and then gravity and friction, which hasn't changed much over the years. We, we have to go a fair way forward until about 1824 till we had a patent on cement, Portland cement. Joseph Aspden patented Portland cement. So that's when we started to get modern cement in structures. But this technology goes back years, I say five and a half thousand years. It's still used today, sometimes for walls, sometimes for structures, call them different artworks, if you will, but they're actually still used today. Sometimes people like the look of them. Sometimes people think it's practical to build with this method, but it's hard work. It's Mm. technical work. And as I said, there's only 22 that I know of masters in the world. So you can't just go and grab someone from the corner and say, can you come and help me put a dry stone wall together? Stack some bricks together or some stones together. Yeah, Yeah, and, and see if it stands up. In Switzerland, obviously, they thought, well, we like the idea of these dry stone walls, but it's pretty hard to find someone. So they've created an autonomous robotic excavator. Now, it's pretty clever. It looks at a plan. So a plan is fed into it for a start. I want to build a wall. I want to build some sort of structure. It then has access to a range of rocks, stones, and it looks at those, scans those with LIDAR, gives a 3D image of all those stones, and then says, that one there. It's going to go at this spot here in the wall. It picks it up, moves it over, puts it in there. Interestingly enough, it's actually slower than humans at doing all of that. So far. So far. It takes about 12 minutes per stone, whereas humans, good humans, can do it in about 11 minutes. So it's fairly slow going. Yeah, but you're talking about good humans. If it were you or I, it would be a lot faster. But this <laughs> a lot faster this than you and I. Fall over. <laughs> I'll do it fast, <laughs> but it's going to fall over. That's right. You can either have slow and standing and or fast and falling over. But the good part about this robot is that it doesn't need a lunch break, doesn't need a toilet break, doesn't need to sleep. So we can plug away one stone every 12 minutes, 24 hours a day. You probably have to stop sometime to fuel it up and maybe put a few grease in the grease nipples, but in general, it'll keep going. At this stage, they've demonstrated the capabilities of this with a 65-metre-long wall that's six metres high. So that's pretty impressive. Yeah, that's really yeah. Now, I don't know. I couldn't find out how long it took six to do the whole thing. High. Yeah, I know. They're pretty serious, aren't they? <laughs> they yeah, really want to wow. stop someone looking over the fence, it's don't a two they? two-storey building, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so they've demonstrated with that. I suppose the other thing you could do is they've got one at this stage. Once they've got the blueprint for that, there's nothing stopping them having two or ten. So if you've got a 65-metre-long wall and you've got humans doing it, Mm. one per 11 minutes, or ten of these robots doing it, well, one every 12 minutes probably doesn't matter that much. Are they trying to keep Mongol raiders out? You know, the Genghis (laughs) Khan and his um, descendants? Some some of the research I found when they first started being built was when people were changing from being nomads to saying, well, I'm just going to settle on this little patch of land and I want to keep my animals in and I want to keep the raiders out. So, yeah, in Switzerland, maybe they're expecting a a (laughs) marauding raid (laughs) from someone. (laughs) So it's quite barbarians now. That's right. It is quite fascinating, though. And I'm fascinated that someone said, this is a problem that we need to solve with robotics. Yeah. Because it seems fairly specialised to me. It's not as if they're building... Thousands of dry stone walls around the world. Maybe they are, but it's oh, very niche. It, was, in it terms is, isn't it? <laughs> market, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, I was pretty fascinated by the fact that all that scanning and then selecting that rock and putting it in and getting it to sit right and the placement of it, when they compared it to what a human might do, the placement, the median center placement was about. 10 centimetres different to what a human might do. So mm. they're getting it pretty well spot on. Well, I've done some digging in my own backyard and I've got lots of rocks just under the surface of the soil. Um, so I'm thinking maybe, just give me an idea. Just let me know when and I'll just be washing my hair that weekend, okay? <laughs> Making a wall. 
In an age where design is sleek and technology often melds subtly into the environment, it seems that there will always be a space for a bit of clunky tech nostalgia. The good old Atari 2600+. Plus. In all its glorious 1980s kitsch, design has been re-released. Matt, you might say this is quite a bold move. It's got a very niche appeal, talking about niches again. It's looking at people like you and I, James. <laughs> One of the things that I love about these type of things is that I can finally beat my kids on a video game. Yeah, you're right. Because they look at it. Because <laughs> you're an old dab hand. That's right. And the thing is, they look at some of these. So, for example, the Atari 2600 had some games like Space Invaders, Pac-Man, yeah. Asteroids, Frogger. And the kids, my kids look at that and go, that just looks like terrible gameplay. <laughs> so they don't even want to invest the time in getting good at it. They just they let don't me even win. understand that you can't actually. There's no end point to it. You <laughs> just keep playing it and keep playing it and playing it. And it will get faster and faster. RSI You'll never you win to, it. You You'll never beat it. it. That's right. So it was back in October '77 that the first Atari gaming system was introduced. It was called the Atari Video Computer System. Bit too long a name. Mm. So they gave up on that. Its product name was CX2600. So they ditched the CX and said. It's going to be the Atari 2600. And that stuck, obviously. Numbers sounded like a good idea. The new one, though, has actually got some modern connectivity while retaining the old look and feel. Like It's got switches that kind of click. Oh, they click. Not buttons <laughs> that you don't feel anything. That's retro. That is. No haptic, tech, haptic touch <laughs> buttons here. It's got good old-fashioned switches that you know you've switched it. It's, it's definitely switched. But it's got HDMI connectivity because how else would you connect it yeah, to right. a modern TV, for example? It's got USB-C on it. So it's got the modern things that you expect to have on there. But really, the look of it, if you looked at this compared to one of the old 1970s, 80s, 80s models, you would look at that and go, oh, it looks pretty much the same because they've yeah, kept right. that look look and the cool part is you can take the old cartridges if you've got the old cartridges ah. left then you can stick one of those in it'll run those or you can obviously get the new ones you can probably download the new ones well, for it my parents never bought me an atari because they obviously didn't like me enough uh, <laughs> and uh, so i had always had to play my friends what well, one thing i noticed about the cartridges though is the artwork on the cover always looked a thousand times better than the actual game. They didn't make it pixelated. <laughs> there was a like lot of promise gameplay. in the cartridge. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it is quite funny, though, when you do see some of the old pixelated images. And again, my kids have laughed, this sort of stuff. Yeah. And they look at it and they go, What is that? Yeah, how could you possibly <laughs> have played that game there? And like, I think of Asteroids. You mm. couldn't have got much simpler, could yeah. you, than Asteroids? It's a little white line that's not that much you, on yeah. there. At least yeah. Pac Man, they had a bit of shape and they were filled in. But. The Asteroids was just a triangle or a yeah. circle. It wasn't much. Space Invaders was a res uh, revolution because um, they had different shapes that were bouncing across the screen. Yeah. And different colours, <laughs> too. Different colours, yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, wow. It's funny, Frogger, I was I was overseas recently and there was a, a crazy road we are trying to get across and there were a few people of similar vintage <laughs> and we said, this is like playing Frogger. And I didn't think about it till afterwards. I thought, if there were people a bit younger than us, they'd say, they would have been stuck. what do you mean? <laughs> well, they would have been stuck as well. They would have been stuck on one side of the road. Road. That's a good point. <laughs> I th you're right there. I think the skills that I used to get across that road, right. I learnt on Frogger. It certainly helped you to get across the stream that was on the other side of the road <laughs> with the right. floating logs in it. <laughs> well, those logs could have been the tuk-tuks and, yeah, and the other parts could have been cars. <laughs> who knows? Yeah. So anyway, keep an eye out for that. About 260 bucks you'll pay for that. Great Christmas present for anyone that's of a similar time to, to upskill millennials. Yeah, upskill them. That's exactly what I'm going to call it. The 
Tesla Model 3 has had a facelift and it's turning heads in a big way. It's setting somewhat of a new benchmark in EV sales even. Matt's got a list of reasons for you to get in on the Model 3 action. One of the things that was fascinating when Tesla was first introducing some models of cars and then a year or two went by and they were still the same car, mm. other car manufacturers said, what do these guys know They've about making cars? Ideas, yeah. That's it. And we have a new model that comes out every year. So we have to go through and retool and keep our parts list up to date and change things just subtly to keep the consumers interested. And Tesla said, well, that seems like it adds a lot of cost to your manufacturing, a lot of cost to your parts program. And really, do the customers really care about that nice little twist extra on the bonnet? Does that yeah, make a bigger difference? different shaped lights. And is someone going to say, I bought the model last year, but look, that new light shape, I better go and buy a new model again mm. this year. So maybe it didn't actually do much, and maybe Tesla was switched on to it all the time. Now, of course, they claim their over-the-air updates was a way to keep the car updated, but you can't get over-the-air updates to change the shape of the bonnet, for example. Yeah. So that's not quite there yet. So Tesla have had the Model 3 since 2017, the same shape, so six years. It's been in Australia since 2019, so for the last four years. And I was a bit surprised, I must admit. I heard a couple of months ago they were introducing the Model 3 Highlander with some new things, new shape, new features. And I went, that's unlike Tesla to introduce a new shape. They were going to stick with that model forever. <laughs> but they've done that and they've actually made a few changes. And a little bit like the Hyundai Ionic that we've spoken about before, just by changing the aerodynamics of that particular vehicle, they claim some extra range and some extra performance out of it oh, with the okay. same motor and the same battery. And that's exactly what they're doing with the Model 3. They say, first of all, they've changed the bonnet, they've changed the bumpers, they've changed the lights. I don't think the lights do anything from an aerodynamic point of view, but mm. more futuristic look with the lights. And those improved aerodynamics have improved the performance and extended the driving range of it. So that's a good thing without changing the battery, without changing the motors on there. The interior has gotten some upgrades as well. Uh, thicker windows have gone, of course, for windows that have got a, an air gap in the middle there. So you've actually got some quieter sound there, but they've actually gone for thicker windows oh, now right. as well for a quieter cabin. Uh, you've got some things like some eight-inch touchscreens in the back for the kids. Because one of the things is... I actually wondered about that. Yeah, you've got this great big 15.4-inch screen in the front, yeah. but of course you can't play on that while you're driving. Well, you yeah. shouldn't anyway. No, you can't. It's, once you start driving, <laughs> the games don't work. So that's you still control. I wonder about that. Like um, They'd um, certainly thought hard, long and hard about what the uh, travel experience was like for the people in the front seat, yeah. but not so much for the people in the back seat. So with that touchscreen in the back, you can, you can there's heated seats in the back now. You can turn them on and mm -hmm. off. You can change the climate control on the back, and of course you can play games on the back. So that's okay because the driver can't see the games in the back. So that's fantastic. And that's not that revolutionary. We've seen no. other cars that have had yeah. screens in the back seats, for example, to, to not so much play games on, but to watch movies on. The other part that's interesting is they've removed some of the controls from stalks and put them onto the steering wheel. So going into drive, turning corners, that oh, type of thing. Yeah. So they've changed that. And it actually tries to guess. So if you're going to drive or reverse, you do that on the screen. And it actually tries to guess which way you want to go next. So it automatically suggests which way you're going to go. So if you've got a car behind you and you jump in to drive off, it'll suggest going to drive for you, but you've oh. still got to touch on the touchscreen. So I'm intrigued by that okay. one. Yeah. It's going to use some type of uh, change there to make it better. But again, it's all about that touchscreen. More and more controls are getting away from anywhere around the steering wheel and going onto the touchscreen. Yeah. So that all sounds good. One thing I am really intrigued about, though, they've got the base model, so that's the two-wheel drive model, 
513km range, 0 to 106.1 seconds. Then they've got the four-wheel drive model or all-wheel drive model, 629km range, 4.4 seconds to 100km an hour. And then normally you'd go the performance model. My wife's got the performance model in the Model 3, so that mm-hmm. drops it down to about 3.1 seconds. And I look for the specs on the performance model and I couldn't find the performance model. Oh. So either... It hasn't sold very well, so no one's bothered, which I can't believe. Yeah. Why wouldn't want someone to get to 100 kilometres an hour in 3.1 <laughs> seconds? Surely that would be the main reason you'd buy one. When you're on the run from <laughs> everything else. That's right. That's what you need. You've got to get going. So I figured that it hadn't sold that well, or maybe they've just released these two models and then they'll release the performance model okay. at some stage in the future. So I don't know about that one, but at this stage... Only those two models. So I haven't actually been able to jump in one yet. One thing that I do think is good is they've updated the shock absorbers. I did notice when I went from a Model S to a Model 3, it did seem just that little bit harsher. So they Mm. have updated the shock absorbers on there and they've updated the tyres as well for a smoother ride. So it's really just lots of little refinements, but it's keeping it ahead. They were already ahead, I think, but keeping it ahead of the rest of the game. So the rest of you car manufacturers out there, pull your finger out, give Tesla some competition because we want to see competition in the whole (laughs) EV race. We're returning today to a topic that we addressed a couple of months back. Now, we've had microphones and cameras to detect sound and visuals for well over a century now, and these exist now as tiny pieces of hardware in a wide range of technologies. But one thing that has required a bit more effort is the electronic detection of smells. Matt's here to tell us where we are up to on this, and there are some details in this story that are going to surprise you folks. So if we look at the human nose, it's got 400 different types of receptors, mm-hmm. about 6 million actually actual receptor cells, mm-hmm. and they say that you can detect approximately 1 trillion odours. Now, I don't know how they now, worked it out. That's what I meant when I said there are some surprising facts here. What? Who's counted those out? That's right. Okay, I'm going to sit down with you. We're going to do and some tests. And I want tests. them labelled. That's right. I want you to, every different smell you have, put a number to it. So a trillion <laughs> later. Let's start I, with strawberries. <laughs> okay, that's Why number not? one. Right. And I actually looked at that and I went, that sounds like just a made-up number. But I went and researched it with a whole range of different sites. And everyone said that at least a trillion different se- yeah, smells we come up with. I start naming them. Yeah, that's right. I want to see the list. One, two, three. (laughs) Now, to break that down and get some electronic ways of detecting that sounds interesting, but really what you're doing is you're taking a compound. So take a common smell that we know about that we all know at school, H2S, rotten Mm -hmm. egg gas, if you like. So that's a compound. Now, that compound has got a shape. If you can get that compound to fit into a socket, if you like, then surely you can say, oh, I know what that is. That's H2S because the shape fits into this socket that I've created. Yeah. But are you really going to create some type of electronic piece of gadgetry that's got a trillion different shapes <laughs> ready to accept those different shapes into it? So if your thing is like it's got to be the size of how many football fields, Matt. <laughs> that's right. Exactly oh, yeah. right. <laughs> so they've actually been quite clever. What they've been working on is identifying the important smells. And when I say important smells, the ones that are going to make a difference to our food health. So when we start to look at that, in the US, foodborne illnesses last year affected 48 million people, 128,000 ended up in hospital, 3,000 people died. Mm. And that's from the old, oh, that food looks okay, I'm okay to eat it, maybe it's a bit off, maybe it's not, or just, I'm just going to eat that food without any thought to whether it's 
good or bad or indifferent. So you that's need something good. to be able to detect H two S. Well, not just H two S, but some <laughs> some bacteria <laughs> yep. that mightn't be good for us. Yeah, yeah. So that's where this whole story is focused. Is if we could have some way of smelling the bad smells, the ones that are going to cause us problems then that sounds like a good thing. Mm. Now, we've talked about it before with stickers on food where it's trying to reduce food wastage because we're going to err. If we see a bit of meat at the supermarket and it says used by the 1st of December, we're probably not going to use it on the Mm. 2nd of December, but it's probably okay till the 5th of December. that's right. But there's a, a margin of error built in there. And those stickers we talked about before were trying to get more accurate in when that food was no longer good for us by detecting some enzymes or some bacteria. And that's exactly what's happening here. By detecting various bacteria, so for example, salmonella. If you can smell some salmonella, then probably don't eat that particular Mm. bit of food. But if you can't smell it, then you can say it's probably okay. It doesn't have that problem in there. And so that's where this is all going, having some smells. Now, I thought you could do a couple of things. You could have it at the supermarket with some noses across the meat section and just have that there. If it detects any smell, then you can narrow it down or at a restaurant or in the fridge. So you start getting these noses built into fridges and suddenly it's an alert goes off and says, I can smell something, whatever it might be, in the fridge. You might know where it is, but then you can start to narrow it down and present food to the electronic nose, for example. It's all about trying to make us more efficient with the food supply that we've got because we're getting more people and it's tougher and tougher. big issue. It is, yeah. It's tougher and tougher to produce enough food for all these people that we've got out there. So interesting. It's amazing that it has taken so long to get to this stage where we're getting sophisticated with electronic noses, though. I Mm. thought it might have happened a long time ago, but it's probably pretty tricky to actually get there. Yeah. Feral cats are a major curse for our native wildlife here in Australia. It's one thing to be a cat lover, but that aside, the annual damage to our native biota from feral cat populations is unforgivable. And land managers, farmers, environmental groups, all alike, they've all been hunting for solutions to reduce feral cat populations for many, many years. Now, it may not surprise you then that a possible solution may lie in modern science and the field of genetics. Matt has the details. Well, feral cats, 99.8% of Australia, apparently you can find a feral cat. Yeah. That sounds like pretty much everywhere. Yeah. And while a lot of other animals will hunt for food, cats have been known to hunt for sport. Yeah. It's just just in their instincts. And for whatever reason, they they like some of our native animals and they reduce the population of some of those. I did read a story recently that talked about the fact that they were trying to introduce, an environmental group was trying to introduce a cat curfew. And I wondered how you'd get the cats to adhere to this curfew. Up, <laughs> oh, you got to go to bed by a dark time. Otherwise, yeah. well, you'll be in trouble. <laughs> so I'm not sure how you would get those cats to adhere to the curfew. So I didn't know if that was the greatest idea. Desexing, obviously, anyone that owns a cat that has it as their pet probably has had it desexed. And if they mm-hmm. haven't, they probably should have. But that doesn't really help the feral cats. Okay, feral cats, go and get yourself desexed. That's not going to happen. So what can we do? to try and reduce this, because it does cost a lot of money. They talk about $25 billion annually in Australia, the cost of feral wow. cats. Oh, sorry, that's probably the cost of invasive species is in it? general. Across the world, $423 billion is the cost of invasive species. So one of the concepts, and I don't know how people will feel about this, is by doing something called a gene drive. Now, you might use CRISPR, we've talked about CRISPR before, yeah. to alter the genes of cats, but the gene drive means that it's more likely for that gene to propagate through the species. So for example, you might say, I'm going to create a 
new gene or, or change the gene of a cat to say that every baby you have from now on is going to be male, mm. which doesn't seem like it's that helpful to keep propagating the species because That's you've right. got no females to actually have the babies. Or you might say all the females out there are now infertile. So you can still have males and females, but they're infertile, so you're not going to breed the next generation. They're trying to do a similar thing, I think, with mosquitoes as well. Mm. Absolutely spot on. They are doing exactly that same thing with mosquitoes. They probably need to look at things like cane toads as well doing that, yeah, but there's yeah. a bit of danger, which I'll talk about in a moment, with, with cane toads. But you do that, and then you make that gene the more likely gene to propagate through the species. It's a slow burn. With rabbits in Australia, obviously many decades ago, they tried myxomatosis, mm. and what a horrible way for those rabbits to die, and mm. it didn't really work in the end anyway. But this isn't a horrible way for cats to die. It just means they breed themselves out of existence because mm. as they breed, yeah. that gene goes through and then they don't have the next generation. It'd probably take, the estimation is it would probably take about 20 years to get down to a reasonable size population, a minimal size population as that gene propagated through the species. So it's a fairly long way to get there, but it wouldn't mean horrible deaths for cats and it wouldn't mean that we would have the problem come back because obviously they would either be infertile or, or males running around. So it sounds quite interesting. Cane toads is another one they've looked at, but here's a problem. In some countries, cane toads are very important, part of the ecological species that we need in that particular country. In Australia, in Queensland in particular, they are a terrible invasive species. So altering the genes on cane toads, great, let's do that. That sounds like a fantastic idea. If somehow some of those cane toads end up overseas, I'm yeah. sure they're not going to swim but they might go out on some luggage or some sort of freight that goes well, out somewhere yeah yep and then you get them into another country and because it's a gene drive that gene in that cane toad is going to be preferred now it's going to take a while if there was one cane toad that got out it's going to take a while but then you'd have to have border inspections not just you can't bring that stuff into the country it'll be let me see what you're taking out of the country as well because we mm. don't want those cane toads that have got their genes having been altered to go out now, I'm not convinced how comfortable people feel with this. When you start talking about editing genes, when you start talking about playing around with Mother Nature as such, some people get a bit antsy about it all. Yeah. yeah. Look, and but we talk about this and uh, the ethics of this is uh, part of actually the HSC syllabus in, um, in biology. Um, it's a really interesting course for debate. Yeah. Uh, and, and containing genetically modified organisms is really important. But look, we've been genetic, genetically modifying crops for a while now. Um, BT cotton is, is very common in Australia because it's, uh, it allows cotton growers to be able to grow cotton without uh, having to spray so many pesticides, which yeah. is uh, really, really important. So that's, I think that's the main issue we're going to have. I think it's going to be an ethical issue, getting yeah. that right. And I suppose the ethical issue is more about the unintended consequences. So people say, get rid of feral cats. Great, fantastic, let's do that. But hold on, did something else happen because of that? Something that we couldn't possibly predict. And then once we've started that gene drive, wow, undoing it sounds pretty complicated as well. Mm. Most animals will only breed in that same species. So you're not worried about having some sort of gene drive in cats, and next thing you know, tigers across the world are going to breathe themselves yeah. out of existence. Yeah. The exception there is dogs. Wild dogs, sometimes they can breed with dingoes, they can breed with other dogs, so dogs can go across species. So if you're trying to get rid of wild dogs, 
that's a different problem that would have to be addressed differently. So it's a fascinating discussion, fascinating ethics around it. Yeah. The technology is there, though, but how it affects ecosystems, uh, who knows? Today we're stepping into the future with a bit of a twist, or should I say a squidgy step. We're delving into the innovative world of Tracepore, where robot feet are getting a remarkable makeover. Let's tread into some uh, tech terrain here, Matt. Let me paint the picture for you. You've got a robot that's got normal flat feet, and it wants to go on different terrain. Well, mm. we're pretty clever. We've got these really complicated metatarsals and tarsals on our feet that seem to be able to handle Fold. different... Yeah. They can fold around uh, an uneven surface. They can do that, and they're flexible. And even though if you break an ankle, you go, why is the ankle so complicated, all these bones there? But our feet aren't even as good as many other organisms or other plant, uh, plants, animals. <laughs> no, no, you're spot on. So there are some pretty clever animals out there and pretty clever human feet that we've got as well. When you start talking about robotics, typically you see relatively stiff feet, mm. and then how do they adjust to different terrain? It's all a bit tricky. Well, some researchers at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology have come up with this concept called trace pore. And if you can imagine the foot now being not a foot, but a half-shaped silicon ball. So imagine a ball, you cut it in half, yeah. so you've got half the ball, and then that's made of silicon so it can deform. Then you load up inside that a little camera, and you put some microphones on it. And then as it puts its foot down on different terrain, it deforms differently depending on the terrain. Ah. And then the camera picks up the different deformation and says, oh, I know what this sort of terrain is. Makes a bit of a noise depending on the deformation as well. And next thing you know, the robot can adjust the way it walks depending on the different type of terrain. <laughs> so when we see robots, typically they're great when you see them tested on perfectly flat surfaces, or they might show off how clever they are going upstairs, but they're pretty well stepped out in a certain structure. When you say, just go and walk over that rocky hill, mm. eh, they're not so good. That's where this might be different. We've got lots of stuff happening with robotics, haven't we? Lots of fascinating Heaps things. Heaps of stuff. It's a really dynamic industry right now. And I think this is really important for the story we did earlier, where it needs to get into the messy bedroom, because sometimes <laughs> you'd have a fair bit of defamation getting over those clothes. When there's a sandwich or maybe uh, <laughs> a half-eaten bowl of cereal. Or an Atari 2600 on the ground yeah, that steps on that. So you've, exactly. You've got to get around all these different things. But this is one way. Will this be the ultimate solution? Who knows? But this is one way that robotics manufacturers or researchers are trying to work out ways to get around the problem you've got in terms of getting robotics into everyday society because mm. they're not going to be used in a robot floor, sorry, a factory floor or a research laboratory floor all the time. We want no. them out there in the real world. They're a long way from that, as we said before, but this might just help us go one step further. Yeah, very exciting. With ageing fossil fuel power stations all around the globe, all about to go belly up, well, maybe not all of them, but many of them about to go belly up, the modern solution to the current energy crisis is in diversification. So it's no secret that nuclear power is the most energy-dense form of electric um, or electricity production that our current technology can provide. But setting up a massive nuclear power plant is enormously expensive, and there's a massive time gap between the all-clear to get the building started and the first spark to flow out but this might all change with a small module reactor. Still able to power big areas, but without all the hubbub, Matt. 
Well, when we hear nuclear reactor, we think of China syndrome, maybe. Was that Gene Hackman? Oh, and yeah, China it's syndrome? got all those Chernobyl and yeah, uh, Three Mile Island and all these things Fukushima. That, that's right. All these things that are massive issues because you've got massive reactors doing massive damage when they very rarely and occasionally go wrong. So that is one of the big arguments against nuclear reactors. Mm. We know they can produce power. We know they can do it relatively cleanly. You can produce a huge amount of power with not a lot of uranium. But again, people keep saying, well, we don't want to build another one of those or we wait till fusion's right or Mm. all sorts of things. But more and more now, organisations are saying, well, let's not try and go and build that massive nuclear power station. Let's go and build small reactors, small nuclear reactors that can still power smaller areas, but you could do it with more of them. So don't worry about building a couple to build to power an entire state. Build lots of them and distribute those around. And when you think about that, it probably makes it better from a distribution network as well. Mm-hmm. The average amount that I've read that you lose in transmission is about 13% of the power because mostly power is generated in one spot and it's transmitted to a number of areas. Large distances, yeah. Yeah, you distribute your power generation over a whole range of areas and surely that's got to be better. I did get a lot of confidence in the fact that Bill Gates chairs one of the organisations that's actually looking at some of these small nuclear reactors. And I thought, well, Bill probably has got a bit of an idea about a few things and he might have put some money in towards it as well. That might have been Mm -hmm. how he ended up as chairperson, but I'm sure he's pretty careful with his money. He doesn't like to throw it away. He's worked hard for it. So that gave me some sort of hope in there. And there's some other organisations, I suppose, that are talking about these SMR, small modular reactors. Now, sometimes they can be as small as a container. A shipping container, yeah. A shipping container. So, and not always. They can be smaller than what you'd imagine having huge multiple stories, like 60-story high kind of buildings there. But you think about a container, you think, surely not. But one of the great things about small modular reactors is the cooling sometimes can be done via the natural environment. One of the issues that you find with some of the disasters we've seen over the years is that if things start to get out of control, for example, you might have had a tsunami, you might have some breakdown in your electricity, then the cooling mechanisms might also break down and that's when you start to get some major issues. But if you had a small modular reactor that didn't need a huge amount of power to keep it all cool, well, it's a pretty hard disaster to say that you're going to have something that will stop it from being cooled down. And obviously that's when you get some of those overruns in terms of the technology. I understand, like Chernobyl, I think that was human error that um, that caused Chernobyl. Um, I, I hope I'm right there. But, um, but uh, And Three Mile Island, I can't talk too much, but Fukushima was a major natural disaster. Mm. Um, so with the computer technology that we have now, the Chernobyl effect, I, I understand, is now... Uh, part of history um so nuclear power is very safe the only issue really now is just getting rid of the nuclear waste which is minimal when you've got a small reactor well minimal compared to the amount of waste we produce from a coal-fired power station for yeah, example absolutely. But, but what i like about it if you did have a problem let's say you had a distributed network of smaller nuclear reactors if there was a problem with one of them, and presumably you're not seeing them in the middle of a city where you've got a huge population, you're still taking them into very sparsely, densely, densely sorry, very sparsely populated areas, <laughs> then surely you're affecting a lot less because you've got a very small nuclear reactor yeah, yeah. with a very small amount of some type of you know, uranium type substance in there. So again, it seems like it's a smarter way to go about it. Now, is this happening in Australia? No. At the moment, the laws in Australia do not allow us to have nuclear power. The laws have to be mm. changed, which they can be changed by yeah. politicians. I haven't seen a lot of 
movement towards that with our politicians in Australia, but well, maybe... Well, I think we'll be sitting back, as we often do, waiting to see who's doing it overseas and how how successful it is before yep. they tend to jump in. Yeah. That's right. Now, the other thing about this is you could power small or, or large factories, for example. You could drop one of these nuclear reactors in to areas where you just needed some power in a certain area. Mm. I remember reading a story about EV charges across the Nullarbor Plains, mm. and there, to power them, you're running either some old oil from, from cooking fish and chips. Fish yeah. and chips, that's right, and using that to power EVs or diesel generators to power EVs. And you kind of think, well, it's not really what we want to do with an EV, yeah. but you could draw because they're not running the grid across the notable plains. It's not always running 400 kilometres of power transmission lines for that one service station there. So typically they're often running off some type of diesel generator, the whole service station, for example. But imagine dropping a little nuclear reactor out in the middle of the desert and saying, there you go, there's enough power to power a small suburb. You can probably power your your service station and EV charges and all the rest of it. might see small townships start to open up in the Nullarbor. Once there was power there, that that's probably a pretty big issue. Water's probably the next issue, but yeah. we won't address that at the moment. But we'll look that. at power. But it is quite fascinating. So I'm, I'm interested to see where we'll the see these. Desalination plant, there you go. Oh, there you go. Yep. you still got to get the, the water from somewhere. but <laughs> pipe, pipe it in from the ocean. But yeah, it's something where I think you could see power being generated with these and I think people would be a little bit more comfortable than a big mother nuclear reactor mm. and tuck that away somewhere because that's what everyone thinks. Nuclear is the way to go. Just don't build it next to me, thanks very much. Mm. But a small one, yeah, maybe yeah. maybe not so bad. It'll be interesting to see how that goes. Mm. But that's all there is for us today. We've reached the bottom of the barrel and all efforts to extract anything more are guaranteed to be fruitless. But fear not, next week we'll have a fresh barrel with super stories sloshing around and spilling over the rim. Matthew, thank you for your diligence and dedication in bringing yet another sterling episode of Tech Talk to the airwaves. And just to make sure I can back up what I said, I better go and get that Atari 2600 fired up and make sure before <laughs> Christmas I'm all over my Pac-Man and my asteroids and, yeah, and I can, space I'm going to smash those kids. Breaking some records. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm actually going to throw on a pair of stubby scoop shorts and Bond's muscle t-shirt and relive my life as a 10-year-old playing Space Invaders and Centipede. Um, myself. I think it's a great idea. Thanks for tuning in again, folks. It's a wonderful thing to put on this little podcast. Uh, put it all together and launch it into the atmosphere each week. And we're sin- sincerely grateful to you, the audience, for catching it. I'm your host, James Eddy, and I look forward to seeing you in our next episode in one week's time. Until then, take care and have